Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can take your listening further and support our work by becoming a member. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. For the month of February, take 10% off the regular membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code interviews. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy code interviews. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of our podcast, as you know, every so often, when we find a book we really think you ought to read. We talk to the author in the hopes that it'll entice you to actually going out and getting the book. And this is a special one of those books. It's by one of Washington's smartest thinkers on international issues and on the role of the United States in the world, Bob Kagan. The book is called The Ghost at the Feast, America and the Collapse of World Order, 1900 to 1941. It's the second volume in a anticipated three-volume series that's really a history of U.S. foreign policy. And Bob, while I know it's probably been a, a struggle to get this far, I remember talking to you a few years ago about this, and to think that you're two-thirds of the way through it already is real impressive to me. So congratulations. Well, thank you, given that it takes me about 12 years to write one of these books. I'm glad that's fast enough for you. My wife would differ. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I, I, you know, I think that given how good this book is and how important the perspectives in it, waiting 12 years for the next volume does not seem to be excessive. One of the things that uh, this volume really deals with is America grappling with the issue of being a a world power and what kind of a role we we should play. And I think essential to the book is a tug of war that we feel still to this day, which is some Americans wanting to look inward, other Americans wanting to get involved in the world, but only reluctantly, some with a much broader vision. Over the course of this period that you're talking about, how does that evolve? I think it's perfectly understandable when the United States really became a, one of the most powerful, certainly one of the richest countries in the world and one of the most potentially powerful countries in the world by the end of the 19th century. Americans still lived in a world that was required very little of them. There was a, there was a kind of a world order then. Uh, we would even call it a liberal world order, but it was uh, basically supported and engineered by Great Britain, which controlled uh, the seas at that time, and was uh, really the strongest empire in the world, and was very much 
interested in free trade, free markets, and a generally liberal approach to the world. And the United States was one of the great beneficiaries of that order. And I think Americans therefore grew up, sort of came, when America became powerful, Americans didn't think they had a particular role to play with their power. Historians tend to talk about the United States becoming a, quote, world power at the beginning of the 20th century, especially after the Spanish-American War. But as I, as I discovered reading the contemporary accounts at the time, I ran across a very popular journalist who said that world order had not been on the menu, world power had not been on the menu, and that Americans really didn't, didn't, didn't look for that role. And in a sense, it was thrust on them by the collapse of the British world order, by the rise of Germany and Japan, and by ultimately World War I, which, which revealed an important and inescapable reality, which was that the United States really held the balance of power in the world. Wherever the United States decided to throw its weight in a conflict, it was going to wind up uh, helping one side win, which is what happened in World War I and ultimately in World War II and ultimately in the Cold War. And here we are today. But Americans have never been comfortable with their power. And so, yes, as you point out, that's constant ambivalence pulling in both directions. And you're right to say that some people push one way and some people push another, but also the same people push in both ways or they, or they push again. I mean, Americans have been uh, individually ambivalent, not just uh, in terms of, uh, you know, one side thinking one thing and the others thinking the other. Yeah. And an example, I think, in, in that might be uh, Woodrow Wilson, who figures prominently early in the book, who resisted getting involved in the war in Europe in the first few years of World War I, but by the end of the war was advocating a League of Nations, a role for the United States, an international order, to the degree to which he's, he's kind of thought of as an internationalist, in addition to being, as we've discovered, a racist and a bunch of other things. So that we do sort of contain multitudes, even within individual people. It seems one of the tensions has to do with the motivation for our involvement in the world. Initially, in the early days of this country, it was seen as for commercial purposes. That when George Washington, Thomas Jefferson talked about foreign entanglements, it was often in that context. But by the time you get to Teddy Roosevelt, and by the time you get to World War One and World War Two, there is a kind of a a moral or ideological component to it, a sense that the United States has a mission to advance in the world. How did that evolve? How did I mean? You, I, I, I read your book. I also read a couple of other things that talking about the U.S. and the Philippines as having a well, promoting a Christian worldview element to it. Is is is, is this a, a theme that runs throughout? Well, I, I, the only thing only where I would differ is I wouldn't call it a mission. And this is, I think, one of the great misunderstandings of American foreign policy. Critics often suggest that America is uh, uh, always looking to like transform the world in its image and has a kind of positive program to do that. And it actually begins with a misreading of Woodrow Wilson's famous statement in his war speech of April 1917 that it was necessary to make the world safe for democracy. Many people take that to mean that he wanted to spread democracy everywhere in the world. And that was not what he was saying. What he was really saying was he wanted to protect the democracies 
that then existed against the real challenge that came from an autocratic militaristic government like the German government, Imperial Germany. And I think that that is the key. It's not that Americans uh, are on a mission. They're not actively seeking to change the world. In fact, they would love to pay no attention to the world whatsoever. But what happens is when they start to perceive that there is a major threat to not necessarily their security, but to the security of, let's call it the liberal world, the democratic world. Walter Lippmann called it the Atlantic community at the time. Uh, today, we would include Asia in that as well. That when Americans perceive a, a significant threat to liberalism and democracy in general, they have been they have been pulled out and be and and actually thought it was important for them to prevent that from happening. And what you see in American foreign policy, this wild oscillation between doing nothing and being relatively indifferent to the world, and then these periods of high engagement and involvement, they're usually, they reflect the, the basic desire, which is to be left alone in my, and, and, and not be bothered by the rest of the world, which then turns into, Americans go to almost directly from indifference to panic when they see one of these aggressive great powers on the move, whether it was Imperial Germany or Imperial Japan or Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union or today Xi Jinping's China and Vladimir Putin's Russia. And, you know, this is complicated in a way because it doesn't fit our standard definition of what national interests are. We've been trained to believe the national interests are about material things, the national security, economics, etc., and not about beliefs. We usually talk about interests and values as if they are distinct. But what I think what Americans have demonstrated time and again is that they believe they have an interest in the well-being of and the security of democracy in the world and not just at home. But it's a reactive, it's a reactive approach rather than a proactive rep- approach. Yeah. Do you think there is a tipping point in the course of this book? I mean, I, I, I do, and having read it, but I mean, do you identify tipping point after which there is really no return for the United States to complete isolation? I mean, we talk about it periodically before World War II. We talked about it again, I think, a year before World War II. There was something like 17% of Americans who supported getting involved in the war. And, uh, and of course, even Donald Trump has a bit of the gated community, let's disengage as much as we can, aspect to his rhetoric. But it seems that between World War I and World War II, or certainly by the end of World War II, the U.S. is locked in. We're an international player, whether we like it or not. In terms of American opinion, you can trace certain moments that are turning points and where the country, or at least significant portions of the public, begin to shift their views of what's going on in the world. And I would say the first event that has an effect in this way is the Spanish, uh, the Spanish Civil War, in which uh, the fascist Franco was attempting to overthrow what was then a Spanish Republic. And he wound up getting the assistance and intervention of Nazi Germany and Mussolini's Italy. And it really became a kind of, it was a proxy war in a way between liberalism and fascism. And, and that, was a, 
that was a moment when a lot of American liberals and you know it's interesting to walk to trace the course of American liberal intellectuals and American liberal thought from World War One uh, through World War Two because they went through a phase. In World War One, liberals were very enthusiastic about intervention. Walter Lippmann and John Dewey and others were, were supportive of intervention in the war. Then they were disillusioned by the consequences of the war and the peace that followed. And so they turned away from intervention entirely. Lippmann became a quote-unquote realist. People like Reinhold Niebuhr became like a Marxist. And they all went away. and But then again, back in, when the, in the 1930s, when fascism is on the rise, liberals changed their mind again. And the Spanish Civil War was one of those turning points. But I think what you may be referring to, having read the book, is I, I want to argue that, that the events of 1938, and particularly in Germany, what came to be known as Kristallnacht, which was the sort of the, the pogrom against Jews in Germany, which led to the smashing of stores and the raiding of homes and really horrific destruction of the Jewish population in Germany, that had a huge impact on American opinion because it, until then, I think Americans sort of viewed Hitler and Germany as, you know, maybe not our kind of guy, but, but not necessarily a, a big threat. And it was interesting that what, what made them decide that Germany was a big threat was not Munich, the Munich settlement in which Britain and France essentially gave away Czechoslovakia. That was the Ukraine of our day, in a way. And basically, they, they just gave Czechoslovakia to Germany rather than have a war. Most Americans were sort of indifferent to that. Franklin Roosevelt publicly praised Munich. But then a few weeks later came Kristallnacht. And that uh, led to a belief on the part of a majority of Americans that whatever else was the case, Germany was something different and represented a more severe threat to their, to what they regarded as uh, the right principles of human behavior than they had imagined. And that was sort of the beginning of what would be a growing sense that the threats in the world were really getting to be very grave. The threats, the threats to democracy. Uh, not just to American security, which was not really threat, and that that was a great that was that was a, that was a key turning point. So let me ask a question, and it may not be a fair question to ask, but you end this book and the focus of this book at 1941. Now I suspect you may have had an internal discussion with yourself about whether you should end it in 1945. In other words, going through the war and then you end in post-war era and the international community is built and so forth. Why did you choose 41 rather than 45? Because uh, it's a good question. And of course, you know, it's always arbitrary where you decide to end a book uh, if you're writing a long history of multi multiple volumes. But in this case, I think it, it makes sense because as soon as the United States enters the war, that is the beginning of the new era. And, and it is also the beginning of a very different role for the United States. And I think it, in order to tell the story of how the United States moved from being essentially isolated with no overseas bases, no sense of world responsibility, etc., how the United States moved from that to becoming a global power with bases in Europe and Asia and hundreds of thousands of troops deployed overseas on a regular basis 
and playing the role that, of course, the United States uh, did play during the Cold War and continues to play today, that began in 1941, not in 1945, because it was at beginning and after Pearl Harbor and when the United States really engages in the war that American power joined with British power and that of some others really does completely change the nature of the international system. So I think the turning point for America is the beginning of the, the beginning of America involvement in the war, not, not 1945, which is the playing out of the consequences of the war. I'm interested in the resonances of this period to today. And of course, throughout the period that you write about, there are resonances, and, you know, beginning with Spanish-American War, and actually the U.S. having a presence in the Pacific. And I mean, there were headlines in the past two weeks about the United States and its relationship with the Philippines as it pertains to China. You have engagement in Europe and a debate over that, which we've been going through recently. In the wake of World War One, you also have a, a hideous outbreak of xenophobia attacks on Europeans, on Asians, on others. And that resonates with where we are today. And then, of course, you have in the interwar period, this dealing with the rise of malign powers. Uh, and as you talk about, you have the episode of British appeasement of Hitler, and that's accompanied by some American voices, whether it's Charles Lindbergh or Joseph Kennedy, who were sort of advocating the same thing. As you were doing the book, what resonated the most with you about the kind of situation we're in today? Well, it, it's, a, it's been a kind of odd experience because, as I say, I, I, I basically started this book back in, I don't know, 2000, let's just say 2008 or so, 2009, and obviously, and then you know, wrote it over the next 10 to 12 years, long before, uh, obviously, the Ukraine invasion and the kind of debate that we're now having as a result of concerns about China and concerns about Russia. And what happened, so therefore, I didn't have the sort of uh, contemporary events in my mind when I was writing uh, about this period. What I find now, even I am sort of astonished to see parallels both big and small between that period and this. And what that tells me is that there are really very clear recurrent patterns in American foreign policy and in the, and in the debates about American foreign policy. As you say, a lot of what we see today in terms of an America first approach combined with a xenophobia, combined with a protectionist sentiment, combined with anti-immigration sentiment, combined with new issue, you know, re renewed problems of race relations, that just described the 1920s. In fact, it just the 1920 election in many respects was very much like the 2016 election. The only difference being you got Warren Harding, not Donald Trump, but the general rejection of what was regarded as excessive internationalism, excessive progressive reform at home. There was a real pushback against the changes that were occurring, some of which were policy, some of which were just modernity, you know, imposing itself on America. And we're seeing those same things today. And what's interesting, and I think worth keeping in mind, 
is that for Americans, foreign policy is never a separate category of issues from domestic fights. There's always, foreign policy is always very much about playing out domestic battles on the foreign policy scene. So, for instance, you know, in the 1930s, Republicans and conservatives believed, or at least claimed to believe, that their real fear was that Franklin Roosevelt was a communist, and he was surrounded by communists, and he was going to turn America into a communist society. This, is, this was a constant refrain regarding, you know, the New Deal and various programs that, that Roosevelt was trying to put forward. And so naturally, as they looked out on the world, their, their number one concern was communism. So they looked at the Soviet Union and thought the Soviet Union was the big problem. And they were generally either not troubled by or even maybe even positively inclined toward the fascist governments uh, in Europe because, and Hitler played on this very explicitly both within Germany and internationally, Hitler was, was seen as a bulwark against the spread of communism. So conservatives thought communism was the threat at home and therefore communism was the global threat or at least they claimed that. Meanwhile, liberals and Democrats who generally supported Roosevelt, their big fear domestically was fascism. They worried that there were signs of of growing fascism in the United States to parallel the the growing fascism in Europe. And there were not just the German-American Bund, but there was the rise of numerous fascist uh, organizations or quasi-fascist organizations in this period. So as liberals looked out at the world, the number one threat from their point of view was fascism. And they saw the Soviet Union and communism as a potential bulwark against fascism. So they were soft on the Soviet Union because they thought the number one threat was uh, German and Italian fascism, whereas the conservatives were soft on the fascists because they thought the number one threat was communism. And all of this was inseparable from the domestic political battles that were having at the time, that were going on at the time. And if you look at the situation today, you could see a very similar pattern. It's clear that conservatives in America, many of them have a have a soft spot in their heart for Vladimir Putin, whom they regard as a conservative force in the world. They regard him as an opponent of the same liberal intelligent global liberal elite intelligentsia that they think that they are also fighting against. And they're hostile to liberal governments overseas. They're hostile to the European Union. They're hostile to democratic Governments in general, they are more favorable to Viktor Orban in Hungary, etc. And so you see these, again, the fight in the United States, which really is in some fundamental sense about liberalism with a, with a capital L, not just liberalism as a political inclination, that that battle is also reflected in our foreign policy debates. You know, I find it really, you know, fascinating set of insights. The term America First dates back to the period you're writing about. The America First Committee was a committee that existed, I guess, around the beginning of World War II that advocated that the U.S. stay out and ultimately had this subtext of being pro-Nazi. But I think the first person to use the term may have been Wilson, but to describe isolationism. And then it got embraced by the Klan and it got invaded. You know, it's just gone through all these different things. And what has been striking to me, and I, 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 I'm sort of thinking out loud here, just having listened to what you just said, 
I've just been struck in the past few days again about how striking it is that the American right has these this big component that's actually pro-Russia, pro-Putin, that's defending him, that's buying into his talking points. And, you know, it sort of fits in the sense that that, that, that there is a tension between, now, you know, we talk about fascism and communism, but in many respects, it's a real tension between nationalism and internationalism. Do, do you think that gets it more close to being correct, or am I missing something? Well, uh, the the conservatives want to want to own nationalism and and claim that their view is the national, you know, is the national view, is the national interest, etc. But that's an, you know, that's an old trick. You want to define whatever you're doing as being in whatever you favor as the national interest. But of course, conservatives are doing more than that because they are playing an old game there too, which is to say that people who disagree with them on foreign policy issues or even domestic issues are not merely wrong. They are anti-American. They're un-American. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of dog whistles in there about Jews and whether they are really Americans and whether they have the best interests of the country at heart. You can see that being played around with by leading Republican candidates even today. And so it, it's an old trope to say, we're interested in, the Amer- in, in defending America, not in defending some global liberal order, which they portray as being a kind of conspiracy of the elite to keep down to keep down the average American, and again, that the idea that there are these vast conspiracies of plutocrats uh, and communists and Jews, uh, etc., was a was a constant refrain in the 1930s uh, in conservative circles. It was a major element of Father Coughlin, the the, the, the famous radio priest of the 1930s. Those links were the ones that he made, communism, warmongering, Jews, etc. Charles Lindbergh got into trouble for saying that Jews were trying to force the United States into war uh, for reasons that were, quote unquote, not American. And of course, we, we hear those kinds of those same tropes today. People are a little bit more careful about the words they use. They generally talk about globalists and liberal globalists and neoconservatives, etc., but it's all the same. It's all that same picture. A lot of mileage has been gotten by conservatives over the past century and more playing precisely to Americans' xenophobia, which, uh, which crops up now and then, their fear of the other, their fear of people who don't look like them, etc. These are normal human qualities, of course, and Americans are not immune to them. But it's been one of the, it's been one of the goals of, of these conservative attacks to sort of stir up those kinds of fears in the United States. And that is very much part of Republican foreign policy today. And, and, but getting back to your point, where we can see all this come together is in what now cle- is clearly becoming the dominant view in the Republican Party, which is that we should completely cut off our aid to Ukraine. Um, it was interesting to see Ron DeSantis, who has been pretty quiet on the subject of foreign policy lately, finally come down and make it clear that he doesn't think the United States really should be engaged in this conflict, even indirectly with Ukraine. And Josh Hawley gave a speech just recently in which he called for the, not only for the immediate cutoff of aid to Ukraine, 
But the withdrawal, the beginning of the to withdraw American forces from Europe entirely, and he says explicitly that he wants the Europeans to know that the United States is no longer able to protect them. Now, that you would do this in the middle of a war is rather extraordinary, but there you have the, the sort of the throwback to the real America first approach. And of course, Hawley's argument, and in general, the Republican argument against helping Ukraine is filled with this notion of a conspiracy to impose some kind of liberal plutocratic communist empire on the world, which is the great global elite conspiracy that they're pointing to. Republicans have taken to calling their opponents, for instance, uh, not only Chinese Communist Party sympathizers, which is another old throwback to an earlier day, but also this constant refrain of that they are globalists, that they are liberal globalists, they're left globalists, etc. It's an old game, and it has been resurrected in force. It really is. And it's really resonated throughout this era. Frankly, I could go on talking about this a lot. I, yesterday, I was in a conversation with somebody who was dealing with a different dimension of it. There is also a group of so-called realists today who are not associated typically with the right or conservatives, but are associated typically with the left. And they have also embraced this idea that, you know, the West started the war in Ukraine and the West uh, uh, is responsible and the U.S. shouldn't be involved. And there's an interesting subtext, which this guy pointed out to me yesterday, which is a bunch of these people are beneficiaries of, of programs that are underwritten by the Koch brothers, who are also sort of vaguely sympathetic. There is a kind of not just conservative sympathy to the Russians, but there is a, a libertarian progressive sympathy to the, to the Russians. And I find it all kind of hard to get my brain around, given the world I grew up in. But I'm just wondering what your thought is of that other side of the equation. Like you, I watch this and I and I try to piece it together. There's no question, and there is a place where the where the where the left and the right meet on this. Um, from the left's point of view, it's the evils of American capitalism. The left theory of the case is that the United States is a capitalist country and therefore an imperialist country, and therefore is, has got is fundamentally evil at its core. They can blame specific people for it, but I mean ultimately. The great left leftist historian William Appleman Williams, you know, he said, "Look, this is in the DNA of America. It's in the DNA of a capitalist power like the United States." The right comes at it from a different direction, but because what their the right's argument is that America is was born good, but it has been corrupted and destroyed by malign non-American influences, whether it's immigrants or Jews or what have you, and that that is, but, and that those are the ones who've been leading the United States into these conflicts. As I say, you know, there was a lot of blaming of the Jews for American intervention in World War II and blaming of the Jews for American intervention in World War I, which is even more bizarre since Jews generally opposed intervention because they were, they, they were anti-Russian because the Russian czars were the most anti-Semitic power in the world at the time. But that but this is, you know, it's 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 a common refrain to suggest that our basic true Americanism has been poisoned by these outside influences. Now, and yes, right now, 
people like Hawley and, and Trump and others, by the way, all of whom supported the Iraq war thoroughly at the time, now want to go back and say, you see, those neoconservatives got us into the war. And that's also a left-wing trope that they are borrowing, even though factually that's not the case. Uh, I, if you haven't done it already, you should get the great professor and historian Melvin Leffler on. He just has a new book on the Iraq war, which is I, I, far and away the most serious, balanced historical account of, of what happened and, and actually addresses a lot of the myths that both the right and the left have made common currency. It's fascinating. And it's a reason that I wanted to talk to you because this book, and the book is The Ghost at the Feast, America and the Collapse of World Order, 1900 to 1941, is rich with themes and discussions that resonate with today. And that, in fact, it is very hard to understand what is going on in the United States today, in our foreign policy, in our politics of our foreign policy, without understanding the roots of these things and how deep they are in terms of America's isolationist impulses, America's xenophobic impulses, America's nationalistic and even racist impulses, and America's better impulses in terms of promoting democracy and our values and seeking peace by finding common cause with other nations. And this is all a story that doesn't just occur once in the course of this 41-year period, 41 year period you cover here. It happens over and over and over again. Um, and uh, I think people need to read this in order to understand it. And if they do, then I'm absolutely certain that they, like me, will be willing to wait 12 years for the next book. <laughs> okay, well, I'll try to pick up the pace, but, but thank you very much. Uh, well, it's a, it's a great book. I have the highest regard for you, and it only went up even further still uh, upon completing this. Congratulations again on the book. I encourage everybody to get out there and to read it, and hopefully we will have you back on sometime soon, Bob, to talk about some of these other more contemporary issues and provide you with a break from volume three. <laughs> well, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back with another podcast. Well, probably just tomorrow because we do them almost every day. Bye-bye.